I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When researchers explore the human genome, they usually look for genetic causes of disease. But a global study being led by scientists at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and Sage BioNetworks is looking for genes that might keep people healthy. Their study, the largest genome study to date, seeks to find people with genetic mutations that should have caused rare childhood diseases but didn't. Dubbed the Resilience Project, they're looking for clues in these genomes as to why these people never became stricken. We spoke to Jason Bobe, Associate Professor and Director of the Sharing Lab at the ICON Institute and Department of Genetics and Genomic Sciences at the ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, about the study, what's been learned so far, and how this may lead to new treatments for rare and deadly diseases. Jason, thanks for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about the Resilience Project, a global collaboration led by scientists from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and Sage BioNetworks to search for people with mutations for rare genetic childhood diseases who never developed those diseases. How did this study come about? That's right. Well, um, the two uh, principal investigators Eric Shaw and Stephen Friend um, really are the ones who spearheaded the early development of this project. And Stephen, uh, who is an oncologist and works in pediatric cancers, um, has been involved in childhood disease for a long time and has been really intrigued with genetic diseases that have incomplete penetrance. And he has worked together uh, with Eric Schott, who is a mathematician by training, and has really developed all kinds of new approaches for uh, analytical approaches for using, you know, big data in medicine. And the Resilience Project is the perfect kind of study uh, where these tools can be brought to bear for an important problem like identifying resilient people and then searching for in their biology that hidden thing, which is that which is buffering the disease in rare people uh, who have genetic risk factors and yet don't develop the disease. We traditionally think of looking at genetics to see if we can unlock a link between genes and, and a disease. Do do we do enough to look at how our genes might actually protect us against diseases? That's right. It, it's an area where. Um, I think is is really understudied, and it's an area that we're that we think there is really tremendous value in making a systematic study of resilience. And if you look at medical history, um, there actually are a handful of really interesting cases out there that show the way forward in this, and that there actually is uh, really potential for developing insights that lead to new therapies or preventative strategies. So, for example, there's this case of a guy named Stephen Crone, uh, and he is a New Yorker, and his 
partner was the first person to die of AIDS in the United States. And this was before we really knew uh, much about HIV and AIDS in the late 70s. And so Stephen uh, was basically waiting for he himself to get become tested positive for HIV. And that never happened. And so he was scratching his head, uh, you know, and he didn't know why he was surviving. And so he encouraged uh, clinicians who he was regularly going and getting HIV testing. Long story short, he um, was one who encouraged clinicians and researchers to say, hey, you should maybe study me. And they did. And they got his blood uh, and they put his cells in a dish and they gave it a massive dose of HIV and his cells never were infected. And at first they thought that that was some sort of mistake had, had, had taken place. And so they did it again. And, um, and still no infection. And, and then what they discovered was that he actually had a genetic mutation that was protective in this molecule called PCR5. And that insight of understanding how this molecule is involved in HIV infection led to new knowledge that ultimately led to uh, a new FDA-approved drug uh, by Pfizer in, in 2004. And just understanding uh, understanding how HIV infection works to work. And so the question that the Resilience Project poses is really, um, can we take a similar approach for many other diseases? Um, and we're starting with childhood disease. The effort is a global effort. Why was it thought that it was important to look so broadly? Right. So for this retrospective study, which we uh, just published in Nature Biotechnology, um, we knew that going in or, or, or we felt that it was likely that we would only find uh, potential cases of resilience to be relatively rare. And so scientifically, um, uh, we chose childhood disease because it was um, it was it was childhood genetic disease because it was sort of more straightforward in some way scientifically um, to evaluate uh, whether or not somebody was re resilient without actually meeting them uh, because we could say we could choose a list of very severe childhood diseases and then go and, and only look at data from people who were adults and these are the types of diseases that are so severe, they're often fatal uh, or very debilitating. And so the fact that somebody was, had made it to 18 years of age was in some ways evidence in itself that the person might be resilient if we were to find um, somebody who were carrying these severe mutations. And so, uh, and so we wanted to get to really large numbers. And, and doing that, we enlisted the collaboration of, of many research institutions around the world who had their own, for whatever reason, either had large biobanks or large research efforts where we could say, take our algorithms and run them on the genomic data set that you have and let us know if you get any hits. And, um, and all combined in the end, that was nearly 600,000 genomes that, that, that we analyzed. As the project evolved from its beginning, it, it, developed into an open crowdsource project. How did that evolve and, and how is that in terms of, of managing the project? Right. So we're actually uh, in that transition right now of going from a retrospective study of hashtag other people's data, I'd like to say, um, 
to one where anybody can sign up and raise their hand either because they believe they might be resilient to some disease that runs in their family or that they would be willing to join a study where we can actually look for evidence that they're resilient, even if they don't have any reason to believe so far. And, um, and one of the reasons why we know that this is really important is because, you know, one of the, the downsides of relying on uh, partners who may have data, uh, but not, they may not have the actual relationship with the individual in a way that allows us to recontact that person and follow up with them. And so we realize that we really need to enlist the help of the general public in a way where we can study people over a long period of time. And as we develop new algorithms for different categories of diseases, um, not just childhood disease, but, but infectious disease or age-related disease, that we can still have that relationship that if we do find evidence of something interesting with a person's biology, then we can get back in touch and actually do a more focused study just on that person uh, to figure out what's going on. And so we were unable to do that in the retrospective study for a variety of reasons where even though we were able to identify people where they were putatively healthy adults and maybe had no report of a particular illness but were carrying very severe mutations for childhood disease and being really sort of devastated in some ways that we were unable to, to, to go the final step of getting get in contact with these people and invite them um, uh, to to be involved in, in greater research in ways that, that, that really could help us find new new pathways uh, to therapies and uh, for other people. Uh, as you mentioned, the first part of the study was just reported on in Nature Biotechnology. You searched for hundreds of Mendelian disorders and nearly 600,000 genomes. What exactly did you do and, and what did you find? Right. So the idea was that um, the, the, the first author of the paper is an informaticist named Rong Chen, a very talented, very talented um, young scientist who created a, a nearly as comprehensive as you can imagine list of, uh, of highly penetrant genetic childhood diseases. And um, and then the mutations that are associated with those diseases that we have really good evidence that when they, these mutations are seen, that they lead to a disease manifestation and developed this, this curated list and then basically uh, went out and provided this algorithm to third parties like the, you know, uh, CHOP in Philadelphia or the Beijing Genomic Institute and said, you know, here is an algorithm. Please run it on your database and then let us know if you get any hits. And then once um, in, in the first round of results from the 600,000 people, it was, it was over 10,000 hits of people who were candidates for um, of being potentially having evidence of being resilient. And then it was really a painstaking process of manual review of each case going through, in some cases, uh, working with the partners to go back and confirm that that with 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 DNA samples that might be in a biobank, for example, of going back and confirming that this person does in fact have this mutation and it's not a sequencing error or something like that. And then once that confirmation was done, 
or if it was found to be an error, then that case would be discarded, um, was going through and looking at what evidence we had related to the person's health. Like, if we found, for example, that the person um, had mutations of cystic fibrosis, uh, did was there any evidence that this person actually was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis and wasn't resilient but actually had the disease? And, and doing that for all of those cases and then whittling those down um, to a short list of the most, uh, the strongest evidence across all of those cases for basically 13 people where there's evidence that they were healthy and had uh, mutations for very severe diseases and that uh, that evidence w was able to be c confirmed to some extent, but not completely all the way through to actually getting the person on the phone and advising to further study. So do we know why these 13 people had genes that should have resulted in a Mendelian disease but didn't? Well, no, that's the question. And so, um, and that's the type of question that the Resilience Project is really set up to go answer. And in some ways, although there was tremendous scientific work to create this curated list of, you know, Mendelian childhood diseases, um, uh, and to then manually curate each case and look at the strength of the genetic evidence and the strength of the clinical presentation evidence. Um, uh, really, once you identify a resilient individual or resilient candidate, and then you validate that they do in fact have mutation and they lack the typical clinical presentation, that's where the sort of the, the, the some of the really hard science begins. Because what you want to do then next is just like Stephen Crone at HIV is actually, you know, get a sample of blood and, um, or, you know, or saliva and start examining their genome in more detail. And, if, and then possibly, you know, other types of things, depending on the disease, whether or not you're looking at, you know, doing RNA sequencing or microbiome and looking at their medical history and, the, and so that you can actually then um, try to identify the genetic or environmental factors that has given this person protection where typically most people get the disease. And so just to give you one other example, and we call this decoding. And so um, in addition to having just a retrospective search, we also uh, get uh, cases referred to us. And so we've already begun work developing these processes around decoding. Um, and so there's a case that we're collaborating on for an individual where... Um, his extended family has really been devastated by this early onset form of Alzheimer's. And the genetics of it are well understood. And it's a autosomal dominant mutation that if you just have one bad copy, um, then you're going to get the, the disease. And it's in the, 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 the onset is in midlife, like around 50. And, and once you get this, typically it's fatal within 10 years. And so this individual now is in his late 60s. And at some point, joined the research study, assumed that he had dodged the, the genetic bullet in some ways, uh, because this disease has run, run in his family, has killed many, many of his family members, over a dozen. Um, and then to everybody's surprise, he actually carries the same mutation. Wow. And so the question is, with this individual, you know, what is it about his biology that is allowing him to escape this disease? And if we can generate this kind of knowledge about what's going on with his, with his body, um, maybe we can learn something that then can be applied to everybody else who isn't so lucky. And so that's really what the decoding uh, part of the Resilience Project is, is, is once we find somebody who appears to be a resilient candidate, that's when we roll up our sleeves and really get to work 
and deploy some of these, um, you know, new approaches to data analysis um, of trying to tease out um, what I like to call it the smoking airbag of the thing that's giving this person protection um, from disease. That's um, that's really rare. You mentioned that there was this initial list of more than 10,000. I think it was actually 16,000, nearly 16,000 candidates that were whittled down to the 13. But a large portion of that, more than 75% of the candidates were eliminated because the scans were inaccurate or there was low confidence in the data. Does this suggest anything about the need for standards to make this data as useful as possible in the future? Yes, absolutely. So I think that, um, you know, there's this, you know, one of the most important aspects today, I feel like, of uh, clinical genetic medicine um, is the ability to actually share um, information about genetic mutations that are seen uh, in patients um, and, and so that we can better understand their effects. And so there are a variety of, of initiatives uh, nationally and internationally that are trying to do that. Um, and because only by actually, you know, sharing this information uh, and connecting it to um, a patient's actual disease state of like, is this person affected or unaffected or the extent that they're affected, can we actually really develop uh, the resources necessary to like really quickly um, understand the meaning of somebody's genome in a, in a medical context. And uh, right now, you know, there's a lot of, of, of work and promise in that area, but it really is going to take, you know, the collaboration of patients, physicians, and scientists all working together to build out this knowledge in ways that, that that's then shareable uh, when a new patient walks into the clinic. Um, uh, uh, that 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 it's going to be easy uh, for this person to get information that that's useful. You also mentioned the uh, this frustrating problem of working with anonymized data and not being able to go back to the the patients and do follow up. Does this suggest anything about the need for rethinking informed consent agreements with patients who submit genetic material for for research? I think so. I mean, I, I think that. Um, that there, in, in some ways, you know, there's there's a, there's a real cost-benefit analysis that researchers and research participants have to consider when signing up for a study. Where, in some ways, I think it's much easier for researchers to deal from an IRB and regulatory perspective to deal with anonymized, identified data. But if the data is collected in a way where you really do disassociate it uh, uh, permanently from a person's identity, and that if you are unable to go back and recontact that person, then you're really limited, limiting um, the type of value that you can create from science. Because I think what we really need is the ability from a longitudinal basis um, to collect somebody's information for research and then not assume that we have all of the right questions uh, uh, from a research perspective ready to go at the time that we collect them. But ask, you know, 
five years from now, we may have new questions, and that person may be perfectly willing to answer those questions in a resource context. Um, but if you uh, disassociate the person's identity at the time that you collect those samples of that data, then you're just really limiting your ability on a long-term basis to do that science. And, you know, this is one of those painful lessons that, that we're learning now um, where, you know, decisions that were made five or ten years ago uh, by researchers have really uh, come back to haunt us in some ways. And so, you know, making, uh, you know, research, I think when, when designing a research study, it is really important to design it um, with sharing in mind. And I think that's something that, that, that many, many uh, research participants um, are perfectly willing to consider. Uh, where does the project go from here, and what do you ultimately hope to yield from it? Well, right. So I think it's really all about connecting um, with with people who, on the one hand, is really valuable where people have, say, a family history of disease, and they may have reason or evidence to believe that they may be one of these resilient people. And every time that we have a news story um, that about the Resilience Project, we get emails of these cases of saying like, hey, you know, when I was um, 15 years old, I was diagnosed with this condition. And I was told that it was going to be very severe and it's been you know, very mild and non-existent. And, you know, is this interesting to you? And so, um, so for us, it's really about building the processes where we can we can start to, from a, in a systematic way, organize these, these cases so that it's beneficial to the research community and to those, those patients and their families uh, for advancing, uh, you know, this important research. And then the other part of it, which I think is really equally exciting, is that one of the problems that really um, gets me up in the morning is that Outside of people who are dealing with very severe or uh, chronic diseases, most people don't even consider the possibility that they should go sign up for a research study. I think when people's mental model of research is a cancer clinical trial, and it's sort of like, if I get cancer and the first-line therapy doesn't work, you know, maybe I would sign up for an experimental drug, right? But they don't recognize that there's so much that we can, we still, basic questions that we have about, you know, fundamental human biology and basic human variation. And there are lots of studies that really do need people to contribute so that we can understand, uh, you know, really how we're put together and that it's really valuable when people contribute. And I think that the call to action in the Resilience Project is one that really resonates with people, that people really could contribute. Um, you know, a, a couple milliliters of saliva to this project. And they could end up having a part of their biology um, that is really unique and special in some way that could hold insights that helps ultimately cure somebody else's disease. And I hope that this call to action is one that really um, inspires people to consider that, you know, one activity that they should think about getting involved in is organized health research, and I hope the Resilience Project um, really uh, gets into people's consciousness as, as something that, that is worth doing. And so I think really, I really look forward to working on this project over the next year and giving that invitation out to the general public to, to get involved.
Jason Bobe, Associate Professor and Director of the Sharing Lab at the Icon Institute, Department of Genetics and Genomic Sciences at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Jason, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.